So I started off really by just sort of uh, taking everything I could, finding references to the festival and everything I could. So just looking through books, back issues of music journals, old programmes, anything I could find online or in second-hand shops, etc. Plus delving into the resources here to try and just build up a picture of how the festival has sort of structured and changed over time. Um, when things started to sort of get quite serious with the research, um, I felt it was really I needed to take it to the festival themselves because it was really important for me that they were on board. And to my delight, they were on, completely behind the project straight away and backed me all the way with it. Um, and although they didn't have much of an archive themselves, per se, but what they did have, they allowed me access to, and importantly, put me in touch with lots of key people, um, which would really kind of fill out the research, including their current sort of staff. And they provided volunteers to help with the newspaper research at, as well, which was really valuable because, as I'm sure anyone who's done new, newspaper research will know, it's a very time-consuming process. Um, I visited the Cathedral Library, um, and here I got put in touch with the former organist, Michael Nicholas, uh, who became my first interviewee, and this was pre-pandemic, so we could go and have a drink in a bar very casually, and it was very nice. Um, and gradually, I then approached more people uh, over time uh, who had been involved with the festival over the years. So I've spoken to former directors and other staff, people like Tony Cooper, who some of you may know from the local scene, uh, was also a huge help in sharing his knowledge and resources, and putting me in touch with other people. And actually doing those meetings, either in person or over Zoom, that was a real boon, and the, it gave the book a dimension it wouldn't have had before. There are some people that I didn't get to meet who sadly passed away while I was writing the book, including the chairman Brian Reed and former president Timothy Coleman. Um, but I was very fortunate enough to speak to lots of people who were involved over the years, and that really comes through. Obviously, I've mentioned the resources at the record office and here at the Heritage Centre, which were vital, as well as the, the pictures that are throughout the book drawn largely from the Picture Norfolk Archive, but also from newspapers, etc. So the book itself, I don't know um, if, you've, if you've seen it or not, but you'll know if you have, that it's arranged chronologically, uh, but with themes drawn out all the way through. So the structure was something I grappled with for quite a long time uh, when I was writing, but hopefully it has made sense in the end. So it was important to me that this book was accessible. So the festival itself, for, for over half of its life, has been a purely classical music festival. Uh, and that in itself can bring a little bit of a challenge because it's not necessarily everyone's, uh, everyone's thing. So I wanted it to be of interest to as many people as possible. But, so I tried to do that without dumbing it down in any way uh, and including plenty of interesting anecdotes, stories, social history bits along the way. So that's a little bit about the research and how the festival book came into being. Um, so uh, let's uh, move on to the first section, which is to look at how a festival has evolved over time. So, um, for this we're going to go back to 1772, so 250 years ago. Uh, and at this time, there were anniversary and there were annual fundraising sermons held at the cathedral. Now, these were fundraising sermons for the new Norfolk and Norwich Hospital, which had been built and opened its doors in 1772. As you can imagine, it was a very expensive venture. It was not something uh, that was easily funded, and in fact, the whole thing couldn't actually open um, initially because they just didn't have the funds. So along with the normal benefactors, it was important that there was sort of some sort of way of raising income. And a sermon was held in 1772 um, for the benefit of the hospital. Now, the following year, in 1773, um, music started being included in the sermon. And it quickly became clear that that was the um, most sort of popular part of the whole thing. 
So a mixture of works were, were included, but the music of Handel was really very, very popular, and Handel obviously very dominant sort of force in terms of the, the musical life of the country at the time. Um, local musicians took part um, and uh, organised these, particularly the Beckwith family, who uh, have loomed large over the musical life of the city at that time. So Dr. John Christmas Beckwith, as he was known, probably because his birthday was on Christmas Day, the St. Peter Bancroft organist, master of choristers at the cathedral. Uh, he was heavily influenced, uh, influential and involved in setting these sermons up. Um, and uh, local musicians and staff gave their time for free. Um, some well-known names came as well. Um, people such as uh, the organist Samuel Wesley, Charles Ashley, the cellist, and Thomas Harper, trumpeter. So big names did come, um, but it was very much organised on a local level. And it was quite important that these were really popular because we need, they needed, obviously, people to, to donate to, to keep the hospital going. So these run, and you think, well, you might think, well, okay, so, you know, this not actually called festivals at this point, but at the same time, roughly in the same sort of era, from 1788 onwards, there were grand musical festivals. So these were held alongside these anniversary sermons. And these were more, these were more commercial ventures. So the Beckwith family were once again heavily involved in terms of organising them and other local organists. Um, but their, 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 main, their main reason was just to raise money to, to, to put on good music concerts in the city. Um, these were on a grander scale than the anniversary sermons. So the orchestra is assembled from a mix of uh, London professionals, mixed in with local amateurs. And they were slightly longer events. So they took, three to four, took place over three to four days, held at St Andrew's Hall and St Peter Mancroft. Um, tended to be St Peter Mancroft was for the morning concerts, which were of sacred music, and St Andrew's Hall were the sort of the more secular events in the evening. And again, some leading musicians really sort of got involved with that, um, including uh, people such as uh, Elizabeth Billington, who was a professor soprano, uh, Robert Dimley, the cellist, and various other people. So, now these two things, as I say, ran sort of concurrently for a little while, um, but they had the kind of overall aim of sort of putting on musical performances in, in the city. Um, however, towards the start of the 1820s, the, the, the kind of the proceeds were diminishing as things went on. So they were getting less and less each year, and it was getting more expensive to actually put on these events. So it was decided that uh, a concerted effort should be made to put on a really large-scale event, um, which was going to be really important uh, on a grander scale than had ever been done before, um, if this thing was going to actually succeed. And it would still have that same aim of raising money for the hospital. Um, and uh, the Norfolk Norwich Triennial Musical Festival was born. Uh, the first, this, this first New Look Festival took place in 1824, um, and it carried on as a purely musical festival, as you can see, for quite a long while, until 1958. Uh, there were obviously ups and downs in this time, there were obviously interruptions with the wars, um, but primarily it ran as a musical event every three years for that time. Run by volunteer committee, um, with the help of local musicians, uh, and a national, nationally known conductor who was nearly always director. So in the early days, it was someone like George, Sir George Smart, but into the 20th century, names that are more familiar with us today, like Sir Henry Wood and Sir Thomas Beecham, uh, became directors of the festival for periods of time. Um, in the very early days as well, the hospital board was still quite influential in terms of actually running the festival. 
And the volunteer committees were always of those of good social standing from the professional classes. Um, it was funded by the county's wealthy families who acted as guarantors. Uh, and that was really important because, again, because this was a charitable event, raising money for the hospital was the kind of the bottom line. Um, it was really important to get the backing of, of the big families in, in the county. And obviously later on, when we get slightly more towards the modern era, after the war, Arts Council funding becomes equally important and trustees are set up, etc. But for the largest period of time, certainly through the, through the 19th century, um, it was a guarantor-based system. Uh, it's really important to mention Festival Chorus as part of this. Um, they were um, a voluntary chorus set up um, to run alongside the festival, who provided the chorus that was needed to perform a lot of the works. Uh, they're an integral part of proceedings. Um, the events at this time were four to five days. Um, so, and again, mainly two concerts a day. And finished with a fancy dress ball at the week's end until the 1870s. It was a charitable event, but it was also really important that this was a showcase for the best musical talent and also new works. And that's something that has sort of gone through as a thread that's run through the festival right to today, that kind of idea of showcasing and promoting and platforming you know, great talent, be it uh, national and local. Um, there were, um, uh, there was a shift from uh, the, the charitable aims to slightly more artistic in the 1890s. So at this time, the 1880s, there'd been an agricultural depression in Norfolk. Money was, money was a bit harder to come by, and actually they sort of shifted the aim slightly so it became a more of a kind of an artistic event. And they said, any profit we have left over, we'll donate to charity, but we're not doing this specifically for the charity. So it's a very subtle change of emphasis, but quite important in terms of um, actually uh, how the festival was run. And then after the 1951 Festival of Britain, for which the Triennial played a performing part of, um, other art forms started to be included. Look at that um, now the festival carried on on a triennial basis until 1988, but I've separated this slide out because from the 60s onwards it became the Triennial Festival of Music and the Arts. So really this was a kind of uh, showing that music was now playing um, an important role, of course, but so was some of the other art forms. So we start to get um, other things in the festival programme. We get art exhibitions, we get plays, we get jazz events as well, and even some early fringe events start to pop up at this time and be included on a more structured basis, whereas before it had been very much a series of concerts over those four to five days. And alongside that, of course, um, other places started to get involved, so things like the Madame Market Theatre and the Castle Museum and other local groups and societies all started to play a part in the festival by staging events um, or, or just, just being a venue themselves. The organisation still stayed very local, um, but uh, it was a shift away from the conductor being director, there were more sort of artistic directors in place. Um, there was royal patronage from 1976 when the Duchess of Kent uh, became the festival's patron. Um, and sponsorship, this is kind of the, the, the age now where sponsorship becomes the main way of sort of funding things along with obviously the Vital Arts Council funding, um, rather than the guarantor system that had been in place for a long while before. There was an ever increasing need to attract broader audiences, 
heavy focus on bringing in young people, a lot of events structured around, uh, around young people, um, and getting, getting those two festival events. Um, and just the kind of need to, to really play a part in terms of bringing more people together. Um, at the same time, still showcasing really important events of, of, of national importance, um, so, um, but not just within the musical world, so, um, you know, again, in theatrical and arts world, um, and then sort of being stage, and we'll look at a couple of minutes later on. Um, and then in 1979, the festival did change slightly in that it reinstated a conductor as director, uh, conductor Norman Del Mar, uh, took over for two festivals, uh, followed by Birmingham in 1985, um, which was a little bit, uh, little bit sort of back to the old way of running, but at the same time it was still with a broad range of events going on. And so finally, format of the festival um, today, so uh, the annual festival. So in the 80, late 80s, uh, the festival became an annual event. Uh, Reorganisation of the festival meant that it became a bit more of a sort of professionally set up company, um, again with an artistic director in charge, but now they had sort of paid staff rather than just relying on volunteers um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and local committees and things. Um, the driving force did remain um, classical music until the early 2000s, uh, but a really important development in the 90s was the, the start of the Visual Arts Week in 1994. Uh, and this gradually led on to the open studios events that still run today, uh, and that had a massive impact in terms of actually bringing the festival, taking the festival out to the county a little more, because it had always been quite Norwich centred, um, but also getting people involved who might not have had a chance or would have necessarily been interested before. Things like, um, along the line of the broader remit as well, um, things like literary events too. Uh, and there was uh, a move to spring in 2002, um, and that um, obviously is where the festival is today. Prior to that, it had been by and large in October time, is when it had been held. Uh, there were odd times when it moved to the summer. Um, but uh, but the, the permanent move to May uh, came in 2002. Um, as I mentioned, other art forms, literary events, etc., outdoor performance, circus, cabaret, street theatre, a lot of the things that we associate with the festival um, today have sort of come along in the last 20 years or so um, and have formed a, formed a really crucial part of proceedings. Um, as part of that, collaborations and partnerships works have been essential um, in terms of actually making, getting events running, um, funding, pooling resources, pooling knowledge, knowledge um, etc. And finally, the educational and outreach work that the festival does, um, and, and still does today, is separate to, sometimes a little bit separate, sometimes very much joined up with things, um, take back in this era as well, and again, it makes arts available for everyone. Um, and it's another important part of how the festival runs. So that's a very sort of uh, whistle-stop tour of, of the format of the festival over time, which hopefully gives you an idea of how it's changed, how it's been structured, without going into too much sort of detail. So, I want to look next at some of the challenges and how they were overcome um, through, through time. So, one of the most sort of remarkable things I found when researching the history of the festival was, was that of its resilience and tenacity, and particularly at times when the odds seemed to be stacked against the people who were organising and running the festival, or success seemed particularly unlikely. And I think it's really credit to those who have run the festival over years 
that their passions and their belief that this was a thing worth doing, even when things were really tough, um, that the festival has actually weathered some pretty rough times. Um, and has and nearly always come away stronger than before, which is quite remarkable. I think that's a really important thing. So in this, in this section of the talk, I just want to have a quick look at some of the examples of how the festival has ri risen to meet the challenges that life has sort of dealt out to it over time. So first, first sort of uh, area of this is obtaining support and internal arguments. So you would think that for um, at a time when, when the festival uh, was trying to be put on a more structured basis, so in those early 1820s, going from the ad hoc events to something a bit more formal forward to raise money for the hospital, that everyone would be on board with that. Um, but, um, as it happens, they weren't. Um, so there were opposition from the people on the hospital boards in 1824 to um, the festival actually running and supporting the hospital, which seems quite sort of um, quite a strange thing. Um, but at uh, one meeting, I'm just going to read a small bit here, so at one meeting of the general board in, in 1823, uh, the plan for the festival was labelled as one of the wildest and most injurious that could possibly be resorted to. So very strong words there that it really didn't feel like this was actually something that was actually going to do them any good. Um, however, it, it, was, it was talked over, there was a lot of bureaucracy in place there to try and get it through, votes were cast one way and the other, and eventually it was decided that they would go ahead with this new look festival in 1824, mainly because um, a huge guarantee fund of £2,000 had been raised and it felt pretty bad form to then sort of uh, renege on that and then go back and, and say, well, we're not going to do it now after all. And actually, that 1824 festival was incredibly successful and resulted in £2,400 profit just over, um, which is around about £140,000 in today's money. So that's a huge amount of profit to be raised left over afterwards to have been then left to the hospital. Um, it never, never actually topped that again, uh, though there were equally, equally high amounts, but that was sort of really successful. So the, the perseverance was worthwhile. Just 12 years later, uh, there was a rift between Sir George Smart, who's a gentleman you can see in the picture there, uh, the conductor and the director of the festival at the time, and the management committee. So in the 1836 festival, had actually lost money. So it was the first festival to not make a profit in Medellos. Um, and of course, there was much debate over why that should be the case. There hadn't been great um, economy at the time. There had been downturn in things near the 1830s. Um, wage cuts had been given to musicians, which meant that some, uh, some of the more well-known musicians didn't come to the festival. There were all sorts of things bubbling on in the background there. Um, but then this whole, this whole rift came about between the conductor and the management committee. And it got very heated. It was played out in the papers, local papers, with uh, people sort of voicing their opinions on either side. Pamphlets were published. Um, with, with this one that's, uh, that's here in the Heritage Centre actually sort of a, an attack on Sir George Smart and then his letter in defence back. Um, so it's a fascinating thing that, and it just looked at that time like it just wasn't going to go ahead any further. It just looked like it was, it was dead in the water, there was nothing more to be done. Sir George Smart came with an incredible reputation, but if you annoyed him, you know, it kind of, kind of felt like, okay, well, maybe, maybe things are, are not looking so good now. When it came to then planning for 1839, which would have been the next festival, three years later, um, uh, they actually approached the George Smart, regardless of the falling out, uh, and uh, he, he, he very sort of politely declined. Um, 
But what it led to was um, a chap called Edward Taylor, who'd been a local musician, was a local musician, heavily involved with um, setting up the festival in the first place. Um, he became director, and he had great connections across Europe, and he brought with him the composer Louis Spohr, who uh, will feature a little bit later in the talk. Um, and so and that was then one of the most popular festivals, the 1839 festival of the time. So it was overcome. There were sometimes objections on religious grounds as well, um, quite vocal objections uh, from, from certain, um, certain members of the clergy. Um, and again, around, particularly around sometimes the subject matter of the works that were performed, which often had a religious sort of basis. Um, that's sometimes a very local thing as well, so different areas sort of uh, reacted differently to those, uh, those things. But Louis Spohr was very much on the sharp end of that once as well, um, when um, uh, a local vicar was, uh, was, was preaching before the performance of his new work, uh, Calvary, and he said that all people who should go to the performance would be eternally damned. Uh, and uh, Spohr, though, understood very little English, but he did recognise the name of his piece, and so he assumed that it was being talked about favourably, and just smiled and nodded at the end, which I think was a, a wonderful image. But the actual performance in the end was, uh, as I say, in 1839, one of the most um, revered at the time, and was talked about for a long while afterwards, as being Louis Spohr's year in Norwich, because he came to the city and, and had such a big impact. Um, jumping a long way, ahead here now, but to 1989, when the, when the festival moved to an annual event, obtaining support then was something as well, which the uh, festival organisers uh, had to do. Um, and again, not everyone um, was, uh, was necessarily in favour of that. So there were, there were those very traditionalists and maybe worried about the change, worried about the impact that it would have going to an annual festival, whether Norwich could even sustain um, a festival on a regular event like that. Um, but I think it's kind of improved over time, but obviously it has been a great success and it's paid the way to today. Next set of challenges, financial. Well, you can imagine that these are numerous. Um, the art versus charity debate. This was a constant dilemma um, throughout, the, uh, throughout the history of the, the festival when it had these charitable aims. There was a constant sort of uh, need to create a profit um, because the whole point was that it was raising money for the hospital. But that had to be balanced against the costs of staging a festival, and it just wasn't cheap. Uh, even as early as the 1850s, um, it was it was said that you know we really need to cut the charitable ties if this needs to, if this is going to um, be a, continue with being a success. Um, as I mentioned earlier, that change eventually came in 1893, and then again um, just after the uh, oh, sorry just before the First World War, um, when um, it was really just a donation bowl was left out rather than any profits donated. Um, the challenges obviously were, were, were numerous varied on various years, but the gradual change meant that artistic freedom was much greater once the tie to charity had been cut and it allowed that kind of experimentation to take place um, and, uh, and some different types of events. Cost of hiring performers very much links in with this. Um, in the 1824 festival, one of the sopranos, um, uh, Catalani, her name was, um, she made a demand that she would only perform at the festival if she could take half the overall profits. Um, and she would bring with her, though, um, a sort of whole coterie of musicians. Um, but obviously, for a charitable event, that's just a no-go. That was just a non-starter. It wasn't going to happen. Um, but negotiations became very protracted entirely throughout the century in terms of actually getting artists to agree to perform for reasonable terms. 
agents increasingly held the cards on that, um, and deals had to be cut. Um, but they always worked really hard, um, the festival committee, to get what they, what they could and, and uh, get the best within their means. Um, the decline of um, uh, wealth in agricultural areas, such as Norfolk, um, played a big part as well. And this was countered by a sort of a, a rise in more urban industrial areas through the Industrial Revolution, such as Leeds and Birmingham and some other northern cities, where festivals were really taking off. And traditionally, festivals in rural areas were actually on the, on the downward trend. But Norwich really buffed that trend. Um, and as I mentioned before, the, the 1880s depression sort of led to that need to change from being a charitable thing to an artistic thing, which had, had benefits. Um, and obviously, post-war, as we talked about before, sponsorship and the Arts Council um, became, became important. Um, again, skipping ahead a slightly to more modern era here, so in um, the end of the 90s, there was a, a festival received a lottery grant, Arts for Everyone lottery fund, um, which allowed uh, the festival to put on some fantastic events um, at the end of the, um, uh, the 90s. But when that money ran out, um, it left things very precarious. And it happened to coincide with a change to the way the government had been dealing with sponsorships. So through that decade, the government had, had a business sponsorship scheme where it had matched or, or sort of uh, gone some way to meeting um, uh, sponsorship, so it would it would contribute the same amount, um, but that was put sort of pulled back at the same time. So it left things in a very vulnerable position uh, at the end of the, at the end of the uh, millennium. Um, the outcome being from that that um, an organisational review was set up and actually prepared the festival really in a better place for the modern world. So again, it restructured the whole thing, looked at what the festival could do in terms of not just putting on events, but also some of that outreach and educational work. And the move to the spring happened after that as well, uh, which worked well for working with schools. And although funding cuts have sort of obviously been something that's, that continues to happen, the festival works in partnership to achieve things and innovate as it goes along. Um, and the final section on overcoming challenges, um, a changing world. So social development here. So sometimes these could bring obviously uh, some real, real positive things. So for example, when the railways started to pop up in the 1840s, that meant that people could easily get to the city to watch events. They could maybe go out and um, uh, come, come out and uh, actually see things, bring musicians to the area quicker. Um, but it also meant that people could get out of Norfolk quicker too and go to other events, maybe in the, in the capital a bit easier um, or outside. So that was sometimes a bit of a constant battle. Also things like crime with big events um, became a bit of a problem. But the festival always really adapted with the time. And there's some wonderful little examples of that, such as in 1899, uh, when the festival laid phone lines down from St Andrew's Hall to the hospital um, and piped the music along these phone lines so that those, uh, those ill in the hospital could listen to some of the music being played, um, which for 1899 I think is quite remarkable. Um, also supported uh, local businesses, so um, uh, local businesses would uh, cater for the festival, hotels would open and put up musicians, etc. And eventually the festival would also subsidise tickets um, for groups of people not normally able to go, such as the injured, uh, injured soldiers or blind people, etc. Um, the triennial for format, um, the every three year format, was uh, often uh, claimed to be outdated. Um, and there were claims of elitism that often sort of floated around as well. This was often these were claims often levelled by critics at the festival. Um, but e even in the 1800s, people were saying the triennial format was 
was outdated, and yet it did carry on until 1988 quite successfully. But they were very heavy feasts of music. They were kind of top-loaded with, uh, with lots, of, uh, lots of events, um, all piled into a few days. And, and I think the, the sort of spread that's come now, um, obviously, is, is quite beneficial. Um, so, um, yes. right. Um, uh, and with the format, of course, with the talk of the format, um, came that kind of inclusion of other art forms as well. Um, so as, as a festival adapted to have other art forms, that actually brought benefits. Um, and just finally, as part of that, competing interests. Obviously, you can imagine in the 20th century, lots of different um, things all competing for people's time, more concerts being put on, you know, the rise of rec records, um, grandfathers and records, and, uh, and obviously live events taking place, easier to get to, um, and other, other things as well. It meant the festival had to battle to be um, sort of in people's forefront of people's mind. And that led to things such as jazz, comedy, that kind of thing being involved in the 60s. And a great example of this is in, the, in 1964 and 67, when the festival worked with a group of people called, who called themselves the Festival Ad Hocs. Uh, and they wanted to represent the younger element in the festival, and they staged fireworks, events, jazz, car rallies, etc. And so again, really working with the community um, to get something so that's a little look at some of the challenges and how they've been met. Uh, and I want to sort of go through with the last sort of 10, 15 minutes or so before we do any questions, um, just look at some of the highlights from um, the festival's past. Um, and I've broken this down into several, three sections. So I want to start off with uh, six key performances. Um, so uh, Louis Schwar, who I mentioned earlier, the composer, and Calvary is uh, sort of much controversial oratorio that was performed in 1839. Um, that, is a, that is a really important performance just because of that, um, some of the hype surrounding it, of course, but also the fact that 1,500 people attended, crammed into St Andrew's Hall, that's on top of all the people on the stage and on scene. Um, and there was just a, a huge reverential sort of silence at the end, which must have been quite, uh, quite awe-inspiring, I think. And as I say, it was talked about for many years afterwards. In 1893, um, there were two very well-known musicians that visited, uh, Sarasate and Paderewski. So Sarasate was a violinist, and Paderewski was a pianist, and uh, later became Prime Minister of Poland. Um, uh, they performed in 1893, at a time when the festival was starting to have more instrumental music rather than just choral music. Um, and they were hugely popular musicians, so for Norwich to get them to come and perform in St Andrew's Hall was a real coup. Um, and Sarasate was so over, overcome by the reception he received that he actually started to play the wrong piece uh, at the start of his concert. He had to stop and start again. Um, he, he also wanted to stick around in town to, to see Paderewski, um, but he had trouble booking anywhere because everywhere was just full. Um, and their photos were up in shop windows throughout the town. It was just a, you know, it was a, an incredible atmosphere. Um, skipping ahead to the 20th century, so 1924, um, Frank Bridge, uh, composer of um, the orchestral piece The Sea. Now, this is important really um, because of who was in attendance at the time. Uh, so a very young Benjamin Britten uh, was in the audience. And um, obviously, growing up down the road in Lowestoft, Norwich was his, his sort of most local festival. And he was here, and this was where he started his love affair with Frank Bridge's music, which was to last the rest of his life. 
uh, and, and the older composer became a bit of a mentor to him. And he, he was in the audience at that performance and, and claimed he was knocked sideways by what he heard. And Britain himself would, would then perform at the festival, um, as we will see shortly. Um, skipping to 1982, uh, so Berlioz's Requiem, or Grand Moss, um, that was performed in 1982 at the cathedral. Now this was a, um, uh, again, a um, huge event in terms of the number of people that were there. Maybe, maybe some people here who, who actually attended, I'm not sure. Uh, but Norman Del Mar was the conductor, and he had five subconductors that he brought in from the Royal College of Music because it was a 130-strong orchestra and 180-strong choir. Um, and uh, the, uh, the, the cathedral was literally shaking to its foundations, uh, as, as was reported. Uh, and there was even sort of CCTV in place to help the conductors see where everything that was going on. It's an incredible performance. Um, and those, are, those that went uh, to it that I've spoken to say it's definitely one of the highlights they've ever been to. 1999, uh, Novice Sad, the St George's Cathedral Choir. Um, so, uh, one of Norwich's twin cities um, at the time in Yugoslavia. Uh, and it suffered very badly in the Kosovo War. Um, but they had this, the festival had this idea that they'd get across the Cathedral Choir which was a kind of a risky thing to do with political tensions being wrapped up. Um, there was a lot of join-up with the police force, with the police force to make sure that this would be a safe event to run. Um, in, the event, in the event, the sort of the, 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 uh, the immediate war that had been around that area had sort of ended, and it was actually a huge success, and the concert actually went some way to fostering a relationship between the two countries, so it was a kind of a bit of a diplomatic event. And then I want to take us right up to present day, which is last year, uh, Abel Sarace, the cellist, incredible cellist, and the Britain Symphonia, who have had a long relationship with the festival as well. Last year in 2021, after obviously lockdowns and COVID, um, very much uh, a sort of a, a, a challenging time to stage any kind of event, and yet the festival um, came out with a brilliant performance. Um, and I don't know if anyone was, was there, I was certainly there, but in the cathedral, everyone was on, uh, sitting on mats, spaced out, socially distanced, in a little bubble around the cathedral floor while the musicians moved around the cathedral. So such an innovative thing to do, but a wonderful way of bringing music to people at a time when it was really challenging. Uh, six key commissions. So as mentioned earlier, the festival has been very um, influential in terms of actually commissioning new music um, through, uh, through its history. Uh, Louis Spall, after the success of Calvary in 1839, he was asked to come back in 1842 with a piece of his own, again, that he wrote specifically for Norwich, which was his oratorio, The Fall of Babylon. Um, Spohr couldn't, unfortunately, be in um, uh, Norwich that year. He had a lot of trouble getting, getting away from, uh, from his, uh, his work, his contract, contractual obligations. Um, but um, the piece was a huge success, and Edward Taylor, his friend who I mentioned earlier, um, staged the work, and that was, that was very, very popular indeed. Um, no talk of the festival is complete without mentioning Elgar C pictures, possibly the most well-known of the uh, classical commissions to have come from the festival from 1899. Elgar, at the time, on the brink of becoming the, sort of the, the great name that, that, that he is still remembered as today, um, so he took a little bit more through the Edwardian era, but this was very important work for him and, and the, the song cycle sea pictures, um, infamously performed by Clara Butt, the contralto, 
um, who was said to grace the stage at St Andrew's School dressed as a mermaid, um, is often, it's often said, um, though I, th I think the, the reality is probably that she, she just wore a very sequined dress rather than actually full fancy dress. Uh, but even so, it's a lovely image. Um, and, uh, and, and, quite re and again, quite remarkable in terms of um, Family in Norwich for that. Um, talking about the great British composers, Vaughan Williams in the 1930s, his five Tudor portraits, um, uh, um, very popular song cycle that was performed in 1936. Um, and at the same time, Benjamin Britten had a very early work um, commissioned by the festival, uh, which was his Our, Our Hunting Fathers. Um, and uh, that again, both of those works, the Vaughan Williams and the Britain, performed in the same concert um, and, uh, in St Andrew's Hall. Quite an event, um, both con controversial in their own way, um, but um, both have remained in the repertoire and uh, fantastic that they started their life in Norwich. Uh, John Taverner, a uh, composer who um, had a huge, huge sort of um, fame in, in the 80s and 90s. Um, writing sort of uh, religious music um, of the Orthodox Church. Um, he was commissioned for a piece in 1995, um, a work called Let's Begin Again, which was a very large-scale piece, included elements of theatre, children performing, etc. Um, and again, for a, for a national composer such as John Town to rip for knowledge, I think it's, uh, it's, it's fantastic. And then uh, last commission I just want to draw attention to was uh, John Sermon, this was in the jazz world. So um, he had um, commissioned in 2000 to work with local groups, local school groups, to write a piece that would be written and performed in the festival, broadcast live on Radio 3, and also recorded for ECM. Um, and although some of the, the work with the, the, the schools didn't, didn't come off quite as planned, it was indeed recorded by ECM um, and released as free and equal, um, and was performed in the city with the, the jazz drummer Jack DeJohnette, we want to work with Miles Davis, so really high pedigree there. And uh, John Sermon has been to the festival on numerous occasions, and that's, that's one of the highlights of his time. And I want to finish with looking at some of the non-classical highlights. So I realise I've talked quite a bit about classical things there. So, as I say, in the 60s and 70s, some, some really interesting non-musical events started to be put on. So art exhibitions were um, um, a key part, key offering, really, in the 60s and 70s. So there was one in East Anglian Treasures exhibition in 1973, um, uh, display of uh, Cotman artworks in 1982, Norfolk and the Grand Tour, looking at, uh, looking at that sort of time as in 1985. Uh, these were wonderful events, often, often done in collaboration with um, the Sainsbury Centre for Visual Arts and the University, um, and curated by, um, by, by professors and lecturers down there. Um, so really, really good events, and some of the drama performances as well. So the Royal Shakespeare Company came in 1970 and did uh, John Barton's Hollow Crown, um, with people such as uh, Patrick Stewart in the cast as well. Um, Old Vic Theatre Company came too, alongside obviously lots of um, events run by Madame Arc and other local theatre companies. Um, 1973 saw the appearance of the legendary mime artist Marcel Marcel Marceau. Um, who performed, um, and um, to some uh, sort of uh, degree of controversy because his, his props got lost on, on route from France to Norwich and didn't turn up um, at the, uh, the Theatre Royal over the road. Um, so for the first, so he had to kind of improvise. And um, for the uh, first time in about 25 years, 
he actually spoke on stage. Um, so a, a really unique event where he had, so he actually had to change his whole act um, and uh, give a performance where he was talking about the sort of history of mime and how it works. Um, obviously, interspersed with examples. Um, and uh, the, the, the props sort of mysteriously disappeared and then later turned up in the, uh, the festival organizer's garage um, when he got back home that night. Um, and no one to this day knows how they got there. Um, uh, in 1982, a quite important event in terms of um, commissions, non musical, uh, the first time the festival commissioned um, a sort of an artwork, a sculpture in this case, and it's in the picture there. Uh, Lilian Lin, I hope I'm saying that right, was the artist there, stood next to George Melly, um, obviously pianist and um, an art lover, um, who, who, who kind of uh, launched uh, the um, reveal of the sculpture, I should say. Um, that now sits, if you want to see it, it now sits outside the University of East Anglia Library. Um, but at the time it sat where here, where the old central library was in the courtyard. And that was the first time um, uh, that the festival had, had commissioned an artistic piece, and um, obviously not for the last, um, but sort of quite an important event. Extrapolation, it was called there. Don't look like pages of a book. Um, mentioned it before, but worth highlighting again the Visual Arts Week that took place in 1994 brought in thousands of visitors to the festival um, and also um, meant that artists could sell their work through that Visual Arts Week as well. So, again, a really great sort of benefit to the local community. And that morphed into the Open Studios event that still runs um, alongside the festival today. 2009, the Spiegel Tent, uh, which remains incredibly popular for, for, for obvious reasons, and a wonderful um, sort of uh, thing to have in knowledge at festival time, and could play host to all sorts of events that we wouldn't normally get um, otherwise. So lots of, uh, lots of late night different sort of performances, which is uh, fantastic. And finally, just to mention the launch events, which have kind of grown into a really important part, I think, of the festival in the modern era. The kind of the things that take place to launch the festival and often take over the whole of the city, uh, be it the tightrope walk from a few years ago through to the, uh, the sort of cardboard tower that outside the forum, um, through to some processions in the streets, all sorts of high wire and uh, sort of circus acts, etc. These are very much things that. Um, uh, kind of define what the festival is today and really bring that festival spirit um, atmosphere to the city. Um, so, so, there we go, so thank you. So, um, as I mentioned, the book is available to buy here today or you can obviously borrow it from the library. Do make sure you visit the Heritage Centre and the Record Office, or the Record Office to see more of the resources. Um, as I say, there's a few bits out in the back there. Um, and most importantly of all, make sure you do support the Norfolk Norwich Festival and look out for their special 250th anniversary programme, which will be announced uh, later this year. Thank you very much.